there was uh, a, a troubled boy staying in, and this was a missionary guest house, and staying in a unit below them. And he decided to um, see how flammable the unit was. And so twice he set the unit on fire. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 15 of What in the World. My name is Jake Lee and I am your host of this podcast. And in What in the World, we talk all about what God is doing both here and around the globe. The goal is also to encourage you and motivate you to want to become part of what God's doing, God's global purpose, and live a life that has purpose. So I'm really excited uh, to continue an interview that we started over the last two podcasts with Steve and Gina Wintermantle. This podcast and the next one actually were recorded after because we ran into some audio difficulty. I did something wrong. I'm not sure what I did, but it cut out. So I had to re-record the podcast and it started off as 20 minutes at the end of the podcast. And now it's two more parts because when you start a new conversation, a lot of times a lot more gets uncovered. And so we fortunately get to listen to two more episodes of Steve and Gina Wintermantle. So in the last episode, we got to continue to hear about how God was leading them down this path to move to South Sudan with teenagers. And we're going to continue that conversation and really dive into the, in this episode, what does it look like in South Sudan? What are they doing in South Sudan? I'm really excited for you to hear that. Let's wrap up this intro. And before we dive into the main interview, first, I want to share with you guys another cultural blunder story. So part of my job, this is a cultural blunder story from Jake. I work at an inner city school in Milwaukee and I spent, well, pre-COVID, I spent a lot of time sitting in the school, um, going to classrooms, talking to students, talking to teachers, just really trying to be part of the culture of the school and honestly encourage the students and the teachers just hearing about their lives, uh, listening to them. And one specific instance, and I had been at this school long enough that honestly I should know better, but a student came in and I had talked to her before, we were friends, and she just started going on and on about you know something she wanted to share with me. And so I was listening and the conversation continued to meander and meander and meander. And honestly, even though my job was to sit and engage with these students, I was also working on something on my computer and I really felt like I needed to get it done. And so all of a sudden, my white middle-class culture kicked in where efficiency is king. And I finally looked at the students and I said, can't you just jump to the point? Um, I, I need to get something done. Can you just tell me what you're trying to say? And at that point, her face just went to immediately crestfallen and she looked at me and she's like, no, I'm done talking to you. And she got up and left. And what I had done is absolutely missed the point that a lot of times in the cultural context that I was in, the story and relationship is way, way more important than time and efficiency. And the problem is I was operating in the culture that I grew up in, which is very much like you could say German culture is very, you know, efficient time, 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 get it done as quickly as possible. But I was spending time in a culture where relationships were more important. Just listening to the story and getting to know people is more important. And I had hurt this student and offended her. And fortunately, we had enough of a relationship that I was able to apologize and said, I shouldn't have done that. Like, I should have sat with you and listened to your story and continued this conversation with you rather than wanting to check a box, move on from you, and finish my, my task. That was another example of Jake messing up and another example of a cultural 
Blender. You guys just made the decision that you're going to go. What what happened right after that? Well, the first step for us after we decided was to make sure that our kids were preparing for the future. So one of the first things we did was we, we like to take our kids out on dates. Steve and I will often just grab one of them and go out for something special. So we took Hazel out to the Olive Garden for a date and thought we would just let her have the news there at Olive Garden. And she was really excited about our date until she found out what we were talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> and then uh, so we gave her the news that we, you know, we were going and um, it didn't go very well. She kind of fell apart on us there at Olive Garden. Not a great memory for any of us, really. <laughs> you know, at that time, she didn't say no way, I'm not going to do it. She was just very, very sad that we had made that decision. So she was 16 at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we gave her the option. We said, Hazel, we want you to at least come with us to Africa for a year. And then following that, if you just really want to return back to uh, the States, then we'll find a family in Minnesota, which is our uh, where we, had, we were at that time. Uh, that you can stay with the family there and go to school and high school in Minnesota. Hmm. And she said, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> One year. Yeah, actually, that uh, really didn't end up happening, of course. We are so glad to see how the Lord worked in her life through it and through uh, people at the school she was going to attend for boarding at Rift Valley Academy, just people who spoke into her life and how they welcomed her into that community and she just ended up making a, a total shift in her attitude. I'd say probably about mm-hmm. six months into being there, um, she really started to enjoy it and be a part of that. So when it came time, we when we came around to the the one year, the end of the first year, I you know a little bit before that, I said, Hazel, what are you thinking? Are you wanting to go back to Minnesota because we need to start preparing for that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she really just answered on the spot. No, I I don't want to do that. I want to stay. So one quick story I want to share here during that season was um, we dropped Hazel off in early September at Rift Valley Academy. And then the midterm break came along, what, September? Or no, uh, October sometime, wasn't it? Yeah, sometime in October. And so like two days for Gina was supposed to fly from South Sudan to Nairobi to spend that break with Hazel. Uh, she came down with a fever, Hazel, uh, Gina did. And by the day before Gina was supposed to leave South Sudan, uh, she was really sick. And so I took her to the little clinic in town and uh, she had a 105 fever. Oh, wow. And they ran a test and she had malaria. And she was vomiting and sweating profusely because it was, you know, it's 95 or 100 degrees already outside. And then you get that fever. And she was one sick lady, but um, they were able to give her some medication. Our team was praying for her because we knew that we had to get Gina on that plane to Nairobi to be with Hazel because, you know, Hazel still was not in the best frame of mind. And she was really looking forward to spending that time with her mom. And so that morning, uh, Friday morning, Gina got on the plane, still battling high fever. And typically there's like maybe one or two stops between our town and Nairobi. Well, this plane decided to take the mail route. 
and they made several stops. <laughs> oh no! Now, this is a little Cessna plane. So, um, uh, but finally, Hazel made it. Or Gina made it down to Hazel, and um, but then once they got there, there was uh, a, a troubled boy staying in. And this was a missionary guest house, and staying in the unit below them. And he decided to um, see how flammable the unit was. And so twice he set the unit on fire while Gina was still recovering from malaria. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So in, the, in the middle of the night, they're running around yelling, come out, come out, get out of your houses. <laughs> so we had to crawl out there in the middle of the night. It felt like a bad dream. <laughs> and so even with all this going on, with you being sick, having a terrible flight there, try, someone trying to set the building on fire, your daughter still made the decision that she wanted to stay. Yeah. yeah she did. So. <laughs> she took great. good care of me that <laughs> So that's how uh, Hazel reacted. How did your other uh, kids and how did it work for you as a family? Like how were, how are they feeling about this? Well, that's where our team in Tariq, uh, we grew very quickly to see what a blessing uh, they were to us. And hopefully maybe we were to them, but uh, you know, there's a good, there's like 10 kids or so the age of our two younger boys. Right, well, and that time Abe was with us also. So he, uh, the three, our three sons went with us to uh, South Sudan and Abe was doing online uh, education and the two boys were attending kind of a homeschool co-op we had there with our other teammates. And um, it went really well for the two younger boys. Uh, Abe learned pretty quickly that he's not really a great candidate for what all of the world is experiencing right now, which is online education remotely. He learned that two years ago. And so um, we knew that, uh, we had to change that situation for him. And we called RBA and asked if there's any chance they would have an opening starting in January uh, the next year. So it would have been, what, 19, 2019. And they said, yeah, we do. Uh, we enrolled Abe in RBA, and uh, he has loved it and is so much looking forward to returning to RBA in here January of 2021. And then our next son, Josiah, will be joining him at RBA here in January, and we'll just have our youngest son, Cyrus, at home with us uh, for a few months until he'll go to RBA in September of 21, and our three boys will all be there together. Is that where Hazel was also going? Yes. Gotcha. One thing I also wanted to like uh, ask another question about is – even before you guys all got on the plane and arrived and are learning these things, uh, there was also a little more to your discernment process, even after praying and making that decision to go. You guys sought some counsel. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how that went? Through the years, we've been blessed with many, many friends at Elmbrook and other places as well who either are missionaries or have strong connections to missions. And there's two families in particular we shared with them. We, we love them and respect them greatly. We shared with them our plans to pursue going to uh, South Sudan to serve. And uh, in love and grace and truth, they said, are you really sure that that's the best thing for your family? And we considered their wisdom carefully uh, because each of them have teenagers. Um, we knew that they were speaking from their own experience and they, they had each made uh, adjustments in their families to accommodate the teenagers in, in uh, their kids were. But we went back to them eventually said, yes, we, we really believe this is what God wants for us now. And let's be honest, uh, uh, the jury's still out. Um, our kids are still teenagers. And so far they're showing signs of following the Lord. If, you know, if I knew today that this was going to cost us some of our kids 
faith journey, I don't know what I do. It would be a hard reality for me to to know what I would do. But so far, things are going well. And we try to shepherd the hearts of our kids in every way we know how to do. We do it imperfectly, but we still try to shepherd their hearts and point them to Christ in all that we, we are doing at this time. Because another thing, Jake, that God really used to speak into Gina and my heart was um, a video by uh, Lisa and Francis Chan mm-hmm. in the video about their family moving from you know beautiful suburban Los Angeles into the inner city of San Francisco. And they said, our unity as a family is a byproduct of being on mission for Jesus together. And uh, that was one of the things just compelled us to, to go to South Sudan. And I'll be honest, you know, I, when I first heard that and thought about going to South Sudan, I had this vision in my mind of what that might look like. And it didn't ever quite turn out that way. And yet we have no regrets. And we are grateful for the opportunity we've had so far and looking forward to returning to South Sudan here in just uh, about three weeks or so, continuing to hopefully build that unity as a family uh, because of the mission Jesus has put us on together. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys sharing that. Why in the world? Why do Christians choose to work for a mission organization making way less than they could in a normal job? Why do accountants, CEOs, programmers, doctors, veterinarians, and many others choose to take a job that pays so much less? Because many of these people are compelled by a savior who is willing to give up his rights and privileges. We follow a savior who stepped down from bliss into a broken humanity. If Jesus could leave heaven for us, should we not consider stepping down from our jobs and taking more humble ones? Many brothers and sisters throughout history have felt this call and obeyed. Some of our Elmbrook field workers are actually serving in supporting roles as accountants, programmers, and various forms of member care. Many hold degrees and experience that would allow them to obtain jobs that would pay better, but they continue to serve in this way. One of our field workers, Jonathan, is an IT systems administrator for Ethnos 360. Why do this? On August 7th, field workers working with the Amdu people located in the mountains of Western Papua New Guinea taught the Amnu people about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. This is what happened. Just a few days ago, I was sitting with a man about my age who had lived quite a life. He had several wives and was well known as a powerful man. He's a good hunter and one who walks far and wide. People respect him and listen to what he says. But listen to his testimony. He said to me, Bart, for much of my life, people have been telling me that I would never go to heaven, that I couldn't or wouldn't be accepted by any means because of having multiple wives and the wild way I have lived. But when I heard you guys teach that it was Jesus' blood that God was looking at to pay my debt with God, I was full of joy. He wasn't looking at all the bad I had done, but only what Jesus did to remove my problem with him. I was a great sinner and have done many bad things, but Jesus' blood is special enough to cover all of it. I am so happy. I have left my ancestral and personal magic that I trusted in and am holding only on to the death of Jesus in my place. Jonathan was not the man on the ground, but had the privilege of being part of this story through his support he provides in his job. We can also take part in this work through prayer and giving. We also should ask the question, God, would you have me change my job? This is Ben, Why in the World. 
it's fun for me and encouraging for me to see you guys continuing to just, you know, this is where God's leading us, stepping out in faith, not knowing everything. And honestly, it's it's pretty countercultural. And it's good that you also weighed people who, or weighed people's advice who didn't maybe necessarily agree with what your thoughts were seriously. You took their concerns mm-hmm. seriously and still are. But when you felt very clearly that God was leading you in a direction, you continued to move in that way. And I, I don't know. I, I just think that's a very humble attitude and I appreciate that. So now fast forward a little, like we're back in South Sudan now. What does your work look like? Help us understand what, what are you guys doing? Well, one of the things that we've done the most over the last couple of years um, has to do with trying to raise up some young leaders. And let me just start off by saying that our real uh, vision for what we were going to do in our first two years was to actually go and Uh, learn language, learn the culture, and really listen to people and start building relationships. Those Mm -hmm. were our really kind of hard and fast goals. We didn't want to set a lot of goals for uh, any big accomplishments, even though those are not small ones. Um, So that was what we were shooting for when we spent our our first two years there. And we pretty much the first six to eight months, that is mostly what we did. Then we kind of started adding in some other opportunities that came out of building those relationships. And one of those opportunities was working with young South Sudanese women and men who had a heart for children's ministry. And the reason that we decided to do this is because we visited many of the churches in town prior to deciding on which church we believe God was calling us to make our home local church. And in all of our visits, we didn't really see any churches that were teaching uh, Bible stories to children. Hmm. Uh, The focus for children's ministry in South Sudan is primarily on choirs and the choreography they do with their choirs. Uh, but there was no one teaching the word of God to the kids. And we felt like maybe we could help them to think about how to do that well. We had a group of uh, young people that we met with uh, weekly and we would go through a Bible story together and then talk about different ways uh, that they might present that. We discussed games that they could play to draw the kids in. And then usually after we kind of went through one of those, we would go out into the streets right around our own house where we met and just gather any kids who happened to be around at that time and have uh, the young people kind of walk through that with them, kind of demonstrating it and doing it at the same time. So that that was a a major part of what we did. That all culminated in March of 2020. We worked together with this team whom we had been meeting with of young people and we planned and um, put on a uh, Sunday school teacher training. And we had, I think, about 35 participants from about 18 different churches in town. And just keep in mind, these churches, they're all mostly probably 10 to 15 adults, you know, 50 adults tops mm-hmm. would be a huge church. Uh, but then each church has anywhere from probably 40 to 100 small kids in oh, the church. Wow. So yeah, that's that's the and most of the kids just sit there through most of the service, just sitting there, usually pretty attentively. If not, they'll get a switch, a kind <laughs> switch, uh, to the head. So we put on a Sunday school teacher training for all of these Sunday school teachers, and then we were planning to follow up with them to see how they are doing. Give we would meet each week, give them a Bible story to go and present that week, and then come back and report on how it was going. But then, like the rest of the world, COVID hit. 
And so all of those plans have been put aside. But our hope is when we return to probably do another training, invite everybody to come back again, and let's start it all over once more. And then, uh, Jake, as far as other things we're doing, in uh, a few months ago, uh, our team leaders, Jordan and Andrea, approached us and asked us if we would consider beginning to pray and explore ways to help to establish some way to identify, mobilize, and send out uh, missionaries from our town in Tarit. Mm -hmm. And I had been able to, been meeting at that time for a few months already with the local pastors. Uh, They had already begun a time of prayer and fasting each Friday at noon. And I had discovered this and went and joined with them in that time of prayer and fasting. And then the two guys, the two pastors who were leading that, Lucas and Ibrahim, um, I went to them and said, would you guys be interested in working together to help establish, and we're calling it a school. It'll be a very non-traditional kind of school in the way that we're going to go about it. But uh, I asked them if they'd be willing to help lay the foundation for this school. And then we, uh, the, the, the missionaries, we would help uh, equip the churches to be sending churches and to help them explore, what does that look like? What does the word of God tell us about what does it mean to be good senders? And uh, they were very eager. And uh, so when we return back to South Sudan here in uh, January, that's going to be what I'm going to jump into. And we're going to use cadres instead of traditional classrooms. Uh, our hope is to use cadres. And Jesus gives us a perfect example of what a cadre looks like. It's a group of people who meets for a specific purpose. Uh, so his method of discipleship is a good example of what it means to uh, use cadres as a form of instruction. And we plan to do that. Uh, my hope is to go back to South Sudan and uh, to find some pastors in town who'd be willing to be a part of a cadre. And then together we will train and equip ourselves to be cadre leaders And then we'll be praying during that time, okay, who are the young people in our churches and other people we maybe know of in some of the, we have like a a medical, uh, a clinical training school in our town. We have a a teacher's training school in our town and some carpenters, things like that. And hopefully go to these schools and I begin to identify some other young people there who might be willing to take the vocation that they've already been trained to do to come get some equipping for being uh, sent out as kingdom builders. We're not using the missionary word because there's so much baggage sure. uh, that comes with that word, but we'll just say, would you be willing to go as kingdom builders and go to the unreached villages, to the unreached people groups, even possibly in South Sudan, and then go and be there uh, to be salt and light for Jesus in that place. So that's what we're going to be focusing on when we turn to South Sudan in January. Steve, last time I talked to you, you mentioned a little bit about kind of the scope and how many churches there were. Could you kind of help us understand in South Sudan, like when you're talking about these guys, these churches being sent out, like how many churches are there kind of in the context and size? Can you yeah. just help us picture that? So our town of Treat, it's, it's you know, it, numbers are so hard to come by in South Sudan. But I would guess that our church in South Sudan if you take all of the surrounding area, there's probably uh, twenty to forty thousand people in our town, and we are the state. Excuse me, we are the yeah, we're the state capital for our state, which essentially comprises the southeastern quarter of the country. And so, if our town of Tarit were, let's say, Milwaukee, then um, yeah, there's quite a few churches in our town of Tarit. Uh, as I mentioned previously, they're all quite small. 
except uh, for the Catholic Church, which is quite large. But then there might be uh, you know this handful of churches, good handful of churches in Milwaukee, and then maybe one in West Bend, maybe one in Shorewood, maybe one in um, Oconomowoc, maybe one in McGuanago, Muskego, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. There are no churches uh, beyond those in the nucleus of churches in the town and just a small uh, scattering of churches around the perimeter. Uh, you move out into the rest of the countryside, and there are no churches. Very likely, very few believers, because uh, there's been, really been no one go out to those places that we're aware of, at least not in the last uh, 20 years or so. That's our hope, is to send uh, these folks from the Kingdom Builder School one day, fully two by two, or a few more even, and go out there so they can mutually encourage one another and help them to um, see churches planted and disciples made out there in the outlying area. So kind of the trajectory of what we've talked about so far is you guys coming over, your kids adapting and adjusting, and you first off taking that initial year to really learn to understand the language and the culture, which obviously I think is a really healthy way, a very a more humble way to go about it, not just coming in with your strategy and your plans and what you're going to do, but really coming in with a more open-handed approach trying to learn. And that eventually led you guys through finding out, oh, they need maybe some help in children's ministry. How do we do Sunday school? How do you train children? And then the next thing you guys were asked to do and what your, your next vision you're really seeing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, is to train up this small like cohort, um, schoolish type thing, and then be sending out people into areas where there are no churches or there are at least very few churches that are near you, that it seems like there's a really large need that people just don't know and there isn't a church in that community. And so this is what you guys have been moving into uh, more recently and what you plan to return to when you guys head back in January. Is that correct? Very good. Yep, that's a good uh, summary of where what we're looking to. And I can't remember uh, all of this being supported in different ways through Gina's veterinary medicine background and my agricultural background, because the one thing we also want to help uh, hopefully these kingdom builders to see is that, yes, we hope that some way there'll be some material support for them, but there are no guarantees for that because currently no uh, local or indigenous uh, church leaders are really supported at all by the people of South Sudan. So any support they might receive, uh, they've found from somewhere on the outside, which are not very many who receive that. But we believe that we can come up with methods to help them to see that God has given them the resources available to them to be able to meet their own needs. And so we hope to help them to explore and to discover and then utilize those resources so what I really appreciated in this episode was just listening to the Winter Mantle's attitude of humility and also their willingness to be countercultural. And I think this very clearly showed itself when they felt the call to move overseas and take their teenage children with them, which goes directly against many of the American values of comfort and security and stability. But even though they sensed this calling, they were willing to humble themselves and listen to friends. They trusted people who had gone before them and listen and heed their advice. But when God continued to tell them, you still need to go, they went. And I think that's something we should all try to learn from, of having this attitude of being humble enough that I could learn from someone who makes no money, someone who makes more money than I could dream, or I could learn from somebody who 
is a child who knows nothing compared to like an adult, but I could learn from them. And I could learn from someone who is three times my elder. And that is the attitude we should have in any conversation. And it's a very difficult one to hold, but we should also be willing to be countercultural when it means obeying God. That should be at the forefront of everything. And I loved their willingness to continue to pursue the calling God had placed on their heart, especially when it went against the norm of the culture they grew up in, the culture of America. I just love that. For me, that's a lot of my story as well, is trying to figure out this balance between humility and obeying this countercultural call. And it's not always easy because sometimes we can fall into the trap, for me personally, where I can become prideful. I can become like, wow, look at this badge of honor that I'm countercultural. Or on the opposite end, I can start to cave because I don't want to be countercultural anymore. But no matter what, we need to have an attitude of humility streamed through that. So I really appreciated this interview. I learned a lot and really enjoyed my conversation with them. A few more things I wanted to point out before I wrap this episode up was one they talked about not wanting to use the word missionary. And this is something that actually Elmbrook does as well. We use the word field worker because missionary carries so much baggage around the world in America. Um, some of it good, but a lot of it also negative. And also it's just, it doesn't really explain what people do very well in a lot of senses. And so we use field worker, people who are sent out to work in the field. And then in this interview, Steve uh, mentioned the idea of being a kingdom builder, which I think is a better explanation of what they are asking these people to do who go out. And what I really like about kingdom builder is it is a more holistic look on what we would traditionally see as a missionary, not just someone just going out to share the good news, to share about Jesus, to plant the church, but also someone going out who has tangible skills. And I think this is a direction we are seeing a lot of mission work move in, especially as we are seeing um, areas where people can be sent out uh, with much less funding because they have the ability to work, especially when that work propels the gospel forward. I still think there is a place personally um, for people who are just, just sent through donations and funds by other churches. But in many situations, it makes a lot of sense to also have a skill you bring with you, a tangible skill and use that to impact people's lives. So you are being there to have a spiritual impact as well as a physical intangible one. So with all that being said, um, this was an absolute privilege to talk again with Stephen Gina Wintermantle. And we have one more episode uh, coming out shortly that will wrap up this conversation. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of What in the World. <laughs>